This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. We'll take your Bibles this morning and be turning with me again to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. And uh, if you've not been with us or you've been sort of sporadic um, with us on Lord's Day mornings because of sickness and other reasons traveling, we find ourselves in really one of the most difficult sections of Paul's letter that he writes to the Romans, that is Romans chapter 7, and in particular verses 14 and following, which is the text that we're going to begin looking at here this morning. So if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, I'll pick up in verse 14 and read down through verse 25. We're not going to look at all of these verses this morning. I'll introduce this section of Scripture to you, and we'll look at about half of these verses. But beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You may be seated and let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at this very difficult text together. Father, we need your help this morning that can only come by the power of your blessed Holy Spirit. We have seen him at work so much in our hearts and in our lives, not only in illuminating scripture, but giving us the power to obey this text and to struggle along with the Apostle Paul in our Christian walk with you. So Lord, we pray that you might open this text to us, give us eyes to see what we otherwise would not see, were we still dead in our sins and trespasses. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A mature Christian, I believe, lives life between highs and lows. That is to say, a mature Christian never gets too high, and he never gets too low. He's steady and steadfast. And I think the scriptures teach that the key to not getting too high or getting too low in the Christian life is found in the attribute of humility. Humility. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, illustrated humility using fishing gear. 
And we have some fishermen in our midst who love to fish. He said this, Humility is like the lead to the net, which keeps the soul down when it is rising through pride. And contentment is like the cork, which keeps the heart up when it is sinking through discouragement. Now in this passage, Paul's analysis of the Christian experience that he has sinks low, does it not? I mean, he says here in verse 24, wretched man that I am. But he doesn't sink too low before he rises back up to the surface and asks the question, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And he answers it, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That was his high point and that was the note upon which he ended this passage. Someone has well said that humility is like underwear. We should have it, but not let it show. Well, that has led many people to think that Paul's language here is so over the top in terms of his humility that Paul couldn't possibly be speaking about himself post-conversion. That perhaps Paul is speaking about himself pre-conversion and his struggle with sin, or maybe he's speaking about someone else, but surely not about himself. Otherwise, it's over the top sort of humility because this is the great Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian to ever live. And there have been some throughout church history, including some of the early church fathers like Augustine, who held the position that Paul was writing about his experience pre-conversion when he speaks about his struggle with sin. I am glad that Augustine recanted that position later on because I thoroughly disagree with that particular interpretation of this passage. Paul's humility is obvious here, but it's not because he speaks about his life pre-conversion. Rather, he is laying his heart bare, not in a show of fake humility, but in an open and an honest way to help believers like you and I not to get too high in the Christian life, but not to get too low in our Christian life as we go through the victories and the defeats in the pursuit of Christian holiness. He's speaking about an authentic Christian experience. What does it look like to be a Christian? And Paul answers that in these verses. Now, as I said, many commentators, and you could go pull any number of commentaries down and find that they ask questions like, is Paul speaking about a believer here or an unbeliever? Does Paul's first person singular I, which by the way, he uses 46 times from chapter 7 on, is this uh, really Paul speaking about himself or is this a literary device to identify some of his readers and to identify with them? And if it is Paul in fact, and he is speaking about himself, is he speaking pre-conversion or post-conversion? About the pre-conversion Paul or the post-conversion Paul? All of these questions are asked and I think... We need to answer these questions before we even look at the text because how you approach the text will determine how you interpret it. If you think Paul is speaking about his pre-conversion experience, then you're going to be led down the path of thinking that perhaps it's possible to reach perfection in the Christian life. If you believe that Paul is speaking pre-conversion, that's going to be your tendency to think that Paul's not addressing here Any true believer, he's talking about an unbeliever who has not been regenerated yet. If you take the position, on the other hand, that Paul is speaking about a true believer, that he's speaking about himself, that he's speaking about you and I, it's going to give you encouragement this morning. So what are the sorts of things that people say who claim that Paul is speaking here about 
an unbeliever. That is someone unregenerate when he speaks about his struggle with sin. Well, first of all, notice in verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh, and he even says, I am sold under sin. And so there are many people who say that doesn't really describe someone who has been redeemed, someone who has been regenerated. He also says in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells within me, and that on the surface appears to be... um, depriving himself of good works as if this is an unbeliever who doesn't even have the ability to do good. And Ephesians 2.10 says that true believers are created to be a workmanship of God, to do good deeds. And as I mentioned earlier, he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am. And so some people say, how can this correspond to the liberating joy of the believer, verse 6, who has been released from his bondage to the law, as we've looked at in weeks prior? How can this be a believer when Paul said, for example, in chapter 6 and verse 2 that the believer has died to sin? How can this be a believer when Paul said in chapter 6 and verse 6 that the old self was crucified and is no longer enslaved to sin? How can this be a believer when Paul said that we are completely free from sin in chapter 6? He said that three times. How can this be a believer when Paul said true believers obey from the heart to God and serve in the new power of the Spirit? He said that earlier in chapter 7. And I think there is a better way to interpret this. Paul is not speaking about an unbeliever. He's not speaking about himself pre-conversion. He's speaking about himself and, by extension, all true believers, because you can look at the passage another way. True believers do say with Paul, as he says there in verse 22, that he delights in the law of God. Did you catch that? He says, I delight in the law of God. What unbeliever do you know that truly delights in the law of God? Also, true believers can say with Paul that the sin we commit, we hate. That's what Paul says in verse 15. And uh, we can say with Paul, I don't want to do the evil that I do, verse 19. And we can say with Paul, I want to do what is right, verse 21. I hope that is your heart this morning. A true believer is humble like Paul. He recognizes that, practically speaking, he can never live perfectly in accordance with God's law, leading Paul to say something like in verse 18, when I evaluate it from top to bottom, I just have come to the conclusion that nothing good dwells within me. Within me. A true believer can also admit, as Paul does in verse 18, that there is an inward struggle with conflicting results, right? We desire to do good, but often we're unable to carry that good out and we do the evil that we hate. And a true believer always refocuses back on the gospel no matter what sort of sin is in their life. They return to the gospel and say with Paul, thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ our Lord for my deliverance. An unregenerate person doesn't say that. An unregenerate person doesn't delight in the law of God. Paul said in chapter 1 and verse 18 that the unregenerate person, the depraved person, suppresses the truth of God. An unregenerate person doesn't honor and give thanks to God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 verse 21, Paul says they don't give thanks to God. They refuse to. And an unbeliever, as Paul said in chapter 1, is prideful. They love their sins. They love what they lust after, so much so that God gave them over to what they wanted. They didn't want to be freed from their sin. An unbeliever never wants to be freed from their sin. They love their sin. They don't delight in the law of God. There is no struggle because they've given in to sin entirely. So I think it's clear that Paul is speaking about himself. He's speaking about himself post-conversion. 
And he is describing the honest conflict in his pursuit of holiness or sanctification. In fact, earlier in chapter 6, he said this would be a battle. Verse 12, he said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That was his way to encourage the Christian. This is going to be a struggle. You are in a war. You better gird your loins. And so now Paul says, all this theology, all this practical exhortation, I really want to bring to bear upon the hearts of my readers, and so I'm going to give my own testimony. I'm going to admit my own struggle with sin. And so he relays that here, describing an authentic Christian life. Now we're talking about sanctification. Another word for that is holiness. And I want to give you a little definition that I've stolen from J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. He says this, Sanctification is that inward spiritual work that the Lord Jesus Christ works in a man by the Holy Spirit when he calls him to be a true believer. He, that is the Holy Spirit, not only washes him from his sins in his own blood, but he also separates him from his natural love of sin and the world, washing him in the blood of Christ, and puts a new principle in his heart and makes him practically godly in life. So sanctification is the pursuit of practical godliness, holiness, honoring the Lord with the way that we live. That is the desire of all true Christians. And so all true Christians love verses 14 through 25 because they realize that the great apostle Paul, the greatest Christian to ever live, shares the same struggle that you and I share in our daily walk and fight with sin. Now, looking at these verses, the depth of struggle analyzed by Paul and the humility of spirit characterizing himself here in chapter 7 are marks not only of Paul, but of all spiritually mature believers who are resting not in their own accomplishments and achievements, but the achievements of Jesus Christ. And they understand and acknowledge, as Paul's going to explain later, that they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so they are humble, authentic struggling Christians. That is a true, mature believer. We oftentimes have it backwards. We think that mature believers never struggle. Mature believers are never tempted to sin. Mature believers have it all together. And Paul says the exact opposite is true. A mature believer struggles. And so Paul wants to press this home, and he does so by providing for us four confessions of a spiritually mature believer. Four confessions of a spiritually mature believer. We're going to take two weeks to look at these. We'll look at two this morning, and we'll look at two next week, Lord willing. And one thing to understand about these confessions is there's a similar pattern to all four of them. In other words, Paul is really repeating himself four times, but each one of these confessions adds sort of another layer to Paul's argument. And I hope that I can unfold that to you as we look at this text. So let's look at confession number one. First, a spiritually mature believer will confess with Paul that he has separation anxiety with sin. And we see that in verses 14 through 17. Paul's confidence, or, or Paul's explains here, that all true believers are marked by a common predicament, a common process, and a common problem. Notice with me, first of all, a common predicament. He says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. 
He's defining here a common predicament, not only of himself, but of all truly spiritual Christians. And that word spiritual, you might want to underline that, that defines the law of God. The law by nature is spiritual, and it's being compared to Paul, and by extension, all of us who are true believers, who he describes as, notice that verse 14, it's amazing, of the flesh and sold under sin. So first, Paul is saying that the law is spiritual. And notice how he even appeals to common knowledge. He says at the beginning of verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Paul has already made that point back in verse 12. He said it this way. He said the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's another way of saying it is spiritual. It is spiritual in the sense that not merely does it come by the Spirit in the sense that it is given in Scripture through divine inspiration, but because the law is of the Spirit. The confessions tell us that God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like man. The law of God is of the spirit. It comes from God who is a spirit and therefore it's not arbitrary. It's not capricious. It's not willy-nilly. It flows from God's holy character. And that's why Paul said in verse 12 that the law is holy. He actually said that twice in verse 12. So we get that. The law is spiritual. It comes from God. It is holy. It comes from a good source. But Paul is comparing the law in contrast to himself, who he describes as, he says, I am of the flesh. For we know that the law is spiritual, but in contrast, he says, I am of the flesh. Now notice carefully, he does not say, I am in the flesh, or I'm living in the flesh, or I am controlled by the flesh. That would describe an unbeliever. He's simply saying that his life from top to bottom, compared to the law of God, it's an issue of comparison here, his life from top to bottom is fleshly. Now what he means by this can be understood by Paul's reference to the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember, he wrote to those Corinthians, that rowdy bunch, that divisive church, and he said, you all are acting like a bunch of babies. You're fleshly, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think all Paul's doing here in verse 14 of Romans 7 is he's humbly stating something to the effect of, look, I feel like a baby Christian. I've grown a lot, but my growth is so minimal compared to the law. I have so far to go in comparison to the law, which is holy and good and mature and perfect and comes from God and comes from a good source. I am not like that. I am far from being like God. But then notice he adds, not only am I of the flesh, but he says also I am sold under sin. I mean, Paul's pretty depressed as he writes this. Because we know from what he said in chapter 6, verses 18 through 22, that the unregenerate are, are characterized as being slaves of sin. The regenerate are slaves to God. He made that comparison. A true believer is not a sold-out slave to sin. An unbeliever is sold out to sin. So what does Paul mean when he says, I'm sold under sin? Well, as you know, some are born as slaves in this world before being set free. There are even people in the world today that are born as slaves. But others are born free and sell themselves as slaves. I think Paul's using some liberty here to say he's free, he's a Christian, he's been freed from bondage to the law, but sometimes he sells out to the master of sin. He sells his services out, we could say. And we could go back to the Old Testament. We have the example of Ahab, 
which the Bible says in 1 Kings 21, sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in that example, it is very clear that he purposely wanted to go in that direction of selling himself to sin and to commit his life to evil. But that's not Paul. Paul is sort of depressed as he writes verse 14. He says, I know that I'm free, but it feels like I'm sold under sin. How do I know that? Well, because of his desire that he expresses in verse 19. Skip there. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I, for, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And Paul was not wanting to sin. This is simply his way of confessing his sin. It's simply his way of acknowledging that in and of himself, no good thing dwells. This, this is very similar to King David. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. No one would say that David was unregenerate. David wasn't like Ahab, and neither was Paul. He didn't willingly sell himself out to sin, but he was struggling with it. What about Isaiah? He stood before God's holy throne and he said, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. Now this is a prophet of God who is supposed to speak the pure words of God. And Isaiah says, The best part of my body, my mouth, the thing that I'm good at and gifted with and, and dwelt by the Spirit to produce words that bring people in worship to God. Even when I look at the best thing about me, I say I'm unclean even there. This is Paul's Isaiah moment. This is Paul's David moment. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Because here's the irony of the Christian life. The closer we get to God, the more we see our sin. And the more we see the holiness of God in his law, the more we see our own sinfulness. This is why the Apostle John said that if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. So here's the reality. The remaining and dwelling sin in a believer is a real power in which he struggles and longs to be free from. And that is what Paul is expressing here. It's a different bondage to sin of an unbeliever because an unbeliever loves his sin. An unbeliever has no conviction of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps his conscience is even seared. He wants to stay in his sin. Remember Paul said at the end of Romans that the unregenerate and the depraved love their sin so much that they give hearty approval to those who practice the same wicked deeds that they themselves practice. This wasn't Paul. He's a little depressed as he writes verse 14, and he's very honest and very open, and we as Reformed believers can affirm verse 14 as a confession of ourselves. This is our predicament. This is really the Reformation doctrine of simul justice et peccator. We are simultaneously justified and yet at the same time sinners, and you will admit that on some days you feel far more like a sinner than you do a saint. And that's actually a good place to be because it draws us back to the gospel. We confess our sins to the Lord. And that is like Paul. He feels temporarily sold under sin, prostituting out services to sin instead of to God. This is the predicament he admits to in his confession. But a true believer will fight against this. And that's where Paul moves next. First, he confesses that there's a common predicament of all mature believers, but now he says there's also a common process. Notice verse 15. He says, let me explain. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now again, Paul is describing his experience of a true believer, one who serves God and the new power of the Spirit. Verse 6, he loves and elevates God's law as the spiritual standard. It's holy and good. It's of the Spirit. It comes from God. Yet he is one who struggles in the process of sanctification in light of God's high spiritual standard, the law of God. Remember, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul's struggling with that here. And he says, for I do not understand my own actions. This is post-conversion. Here he means, experientially, I don't understand my own actions. Theologically, he understood quite well. He had been redeemed. He had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's what brought the experiential confusion. If it is true that I've been made a new creation in Christ as I've been preaching, if it is true that I'm indwelt by the Spirit, then why, as I evaluate my own life and look at my own actions, am I constantly disappointed? I constantly ask myself, how could I behave this way after all God has done to redeem me from my bondage to sin? How could I sell myself back to sin, even temporarily? And on his best and most honest days of evaluation, notice he goes on to say, For I do not do what I want, verse 15, but I do the very thing I hate. I mean, Paul is laying out the soul-wrenching process of sanctification for every child of God. Can you relate to that? That I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate? He's not saying that he never does what he wants. He's clear here, the wanting is there, but sometimes the willing is not. He doesn't do what he loves, for I do not do what I want, which would be God's law, because he's talked about that several times. Instead, he does what he hates, the very thing I hate, which, of course, would be sin, violating God's law. He's frustrated, isn't he? He hasn't lived up to the law's perfect standard. Now, compare this to pre-conversion Paul. This is nothing like pre-conversion Paul. Have you read Philippians chapter 3? Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I have been circumcised, I am, this is how he concludes it, blameless, completely perfect. I've obeyed God's law to a T and everyone knows it. But now in his post-conversion state, he's not satisfied like he was before, was he? Is he? As he compares himself against the law, he feels himself not blameless but blameworthy. And friends, that is the soul-wrenching process of sanctification, There should be miserable days and miserable moments in your life because of your own sin that you're responsible for before God. And this is because because the merely moral man or religious man has a low view of the law of God. He's he's completely satisfied in himself and, and how he lives his life because he has a low view of the law. And because he has a low view of the law, he has a low view of God. And he has a low view of God because he has a high view of himself. That's the moral man. That's the religious man. This wasn't the view of Paul. This wasn't the view of Isaiah. This wasn't the view of David. Woe is me, said Isaiah. David said, my transgressions are ever before me. You don't have to tell me I'm a sinner. I know it. And Paul says, I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I hate. See, true believers, mature believers, admit that they are in a struggle with sin. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, because in Galatians chapter 5, Paul describes this same process of sanctification as warfare. Notice this language. We'll begin in verse 16. Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. It's in combat against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Doesn't that sound similar to the language of Romans 7? Our sin prevents us from doing what we want to do. Our flesh prevents us. The Spirit battles the flesh. The flesh battles the Spirit. The same idea here in Romans chapter 7. Now, Paul had already mentioned the Spirit in verse 6 of Romans 7. He's going to mention the Spirit again in chapter 8. What he's saying is the same thing he's saying in Galatians 5.17. There's opposition, the Spirit in the flesh. Even the depth Paul had grown spiritually was little in comparison to how far he knew he needed to grow. Because all he had accomplished at this point, as he viewed it, was tainted by sin. His aim was far higher than his reach. And true Christian contentment and perseverance is not found in how much temporary happiness we can attain or how much temporary sadness we can avoid. No, the joy and contentment that fuels perseverance is the joy that we have in the midst of our struggle and our process of spiritual growth. And every true Christian laments that process and at the same time has joy in it because he wants to honor the Lord. Perhaps Longfellow was more than right when he said, not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to live that each tomorrow finds us farther than today. A true Christian wants to go beyond where he or she is at presently. Paul wasn't content in stopping to smell the roses of spiritual accomplishment. You certainly get that drift here, right? He is agonizing over his own sin. He doesn't list his accomplishments. He doesn't stop to smell the roses. No, Paul was absolutely driven by his failure. That is a key to living the Christian life. Not to be bogged down by your failure, not to linger on it, but to recognize it long enough to push forward. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. When Paul says, I'm forgetting what lies behind, he's not saying I just gave a wink to my sin. In order to forget what lies behind, you have to know what you're leaving behind. It was all his sin that he had committed post-conversion, and he doesn't linger there. He takes the rearview mirror off, and he presses forward in the Christian life. His failures are what drove him without lingering on it. This is the process of a mature believer. So Paul's making a confession. And he identifies what is true about him and true about all mature believers. There's a common predicament. We are of the flesh. We're sold under sin. We struggle with it. There's a common process, sanctification, which means there are times that we do not do what we want and we do the very thing we hate. And there's also a common problem. Now, Paul has alluded to this, and it's obvious who the problem is. The problem's not God. It's Paul, right? The problem is not God. It's you and me. And notice what Paul says in verse 16. He says, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, this is process of elimination. It's either me or the law that's bad. And Paul says in verse 16, I agree with the law that the law is good. He said in verse 12, it's holy and good and righteous. You could never convince Paul that the law was the problem. There are a lot of Christians today, sometimes I feel like you have to convince them that the law of God is not the problem. 
But when Paul and any believer does what we do not want to do, which is sin, Paul's saying it's not the fault of God or his law. God doesn't need to lower his standards. We are the problem, Paul is saying by implication. Paul's saying I am the problem, not the the law of God. God doesn't need to lower his standards so that we are a greater force in our battle against sin. When I was younger, and particularly a young man, but even a kid, as I was watching sports on television, inevitably there would be a commercial about the army or the marines. And I would see these young men climbing mountains and shooting guns and doing all these manly sorts of things and fighting and having courage. And it oftentimes made me want to join the military. But I have to tell you that now when I see commercials on the military... It's very clear to me they have lowered their standards because it seems like they pick the wimpiest guys and they put a lot of women in there who they send off into combat. What appeal is that to a warrior? There is no appeal. They've lowered the standards. God says, I'm not going to lower my standards to help you feel better about your spiritual walk. And Paul says in verse 16, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. That only means one thing. The law is not the problem. Paul is the problem, right? So notice what he says in verse 17. He says, so, here's what I want you to conclude. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin. Sin that dwells in me. Now, on the surface, it appears that he's backtracking, right? He he said the law is good, the law is not the problem. But here, it's almost like he's saying, I'm not the problem either. That's not at all what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. He's not refusing to take responsibility for his sin. He's already admitted that the law is spiritual, verse 14, that the law is holy and good and righteous, verse 12. Verse 16, that he agrees with the law of God. He's already admitted that he is sold out to sin sometimes, that he's prostituted his services to the cause of sin. At times, post-conversion, he was complicit in sin. So what he's saying in verse 17, please understand this. This is not a technical and theological point, if I can put it that way. This is a practical and experiential point. There are so many people that read into this verse things the Apostle Paul had no intent of communicating. Paul is not saying that he has alter egos. He's not saying, look, uh, here's the problem. I'm spiritually schizophrenic. So when I commit sin, it's really not me, it's the sin. He's also not teaching that the Christian has two natures. He's simply giving a personality to the sin that dwells within all believers, isn't it? Because we are all new creations, we're a new self, our new self interacts with sin as if it's someone else, another person, an alter ego. Because sin no longer defines our true identity, we can't identify with that sin. But Paul still sees himself as the problem. It's just his way of expressing that he doesn't want to cooperate with sin. That, As he said in verse 16, he's on the side of the law, at the heart of his innermost being. He wants to honor God. The law is no longer his enemy. It no longer condemns him. But remaining sin does sometimes defeat him, and he doesn't want to be defeated by that sin, so he feels as if sin is someone else. He's personifying sin to express his desire to be separate from sin and to follow God's law. Now, if you'll just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just for a moment, Paul does this same sort of thing in almost the opposite way. In Romans 7, he's speaking about the bad he does, and he almost makes it sound like 
He wants to blame sin, not himself. But we know the exact opposite is true. He's really blaming himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about good that he does. And in this case, he gives God the credit instead of himself. In Romans 7, he gives sin the credit instead of himself. Here he gives God the credit instead of himself. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Now Paul's not saying that there's two of me, and that when I do good things and serve the Lord in ministry, that it's really not me, it's all God, and I'm just a robot and I have nothing to do with it. No, this is his way of giving God glory, right? Giving credit to the Lord. And saying, if I've done any good, I, just, I give all the credit to God. Well, in the same way, just the opposite way in Romans 7, Paul is taking responsibility for his sin. When he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, it's his way of expressing that sin is like an imposing and opposing enemy of his soul. And he doesn't want to identify with it because he doesn't want to be defeated in sin because he's a new creature. And by the way, all True believers have that level of sensitivity to sin. Let me give you a few verses. True believers are sensitive to the imposing figure of sin because true believers don't want to disappoint God. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed. True believers don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to disappoint God, so we are sensitive to the imposing figure of sin. We're also sensitive to sin because we don't want to dishonor God. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? He says that your body is a temple, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price. And because of that, you don't want to dishonor your new master. True Christians are sensitive to sin and temptation and the imposing figure of that threat because we know that sin deactivates our prayer lives. It deactivates our prayer lives. Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord, quoting from the Psalms, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Lord will deactivate your prayers to him. And that is why true Christians are sensitive to the threat of sin. We are sensitive to the threat of sin because it also deadens the joy of our salvation. What did David pray in Psalm 51 when he confessed his sin? He said, O God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Don't let me linger and languish and wallow in my sin and guilt. True believers are sensitive to the threat of sin because we know that it diminishes our usefulness. We can't be used by God when we are living in sin that is unconfessed. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. True Christians are sensitive to the threat of sin because we know that it damages our Christian witness. We are to be the light of the world. We are to be the salt that preserves society. We are to let the light shine so that others see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. As Christians, we are sensitive to sin and the threat of sin and temptation because we know that it destroys Christian fellowship. It rips churches apart. Sin always destroys the fellowship of the body. When you are connected and a member of the church, your sin affects the whole. In fact, Paul appealed to the Corinthians 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And you say, well, that's just Paul giving another one of his speeches. No, this was real. And he calls out names. He says, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. In other words, this is real. Someone has come to me and told me about your divisions, which is sin. And Paul would tell the Galatians, be careful that you don't bite and devour one another and destroy one another. As Christians who are mature, we are sensitive to sin as an imposing figure because we know that sin delivers ourselves over to the Lord's chastening, right? Hebrews twelve seven. for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? As mature believers, we are sensitive to the power of sin because we know it deprives ourselves of God's good blessings. Jeremiah 5.25, your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. The Lord's blessing has been removed. So true believers are just like Paul. We don't want to identify with sin. We know that we're the problem, but we want to separate ourselves from sin. We want to be sanctified We are sensitive to the imposing figure of sin because we know it disappoints God. We know it dishonors God. We know it deactivates our prayer lives. We know it deadens the joy of our salvation. We know that it diminishes our usefulness to God. It damages our Christian witness. It destroys our Christian fellowship. It delivers us over to the Lord's chastening. It deprives ourselves of God's good blessings. And finally, it can disqualify us even from public ministry. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Read Paul. He always compares the Christian to an athlete or a soldier. An athlete or a soldier. Fighters, warriors, competitors. Those not satisfied with where they're at in their Christian walk. So Paul is laying his heart bare, isn't he? He's confessing his sin. But there's a second layer of confession that analyzes the mature Christian's experience even deeper. The first confession is um, that the spiritually mature believer can confess with Paul that he has separation anxiety with sin. But second, we see in verses 18 through 20, he confesses that he doesn't feel in control of his holiness. That is to say that sometimes... Sin gets the upper hand instead of the spirit of his new self. And verses 18 through 20 in this confession, it follows the same pattern. He begins with a common predicament. Notice the beginning of verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. This is very similar to verse 14 when he said he was of the flesh. He's repeating that predicament. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's not saying that The soul is good and the body is evil. That's Gnosticism. That's false dualism. He's also not saying that he has no desire whatsoever to do good. His whole point is that he struggles to do good, and that's his point later in this verse. He's simply outlining the predicament, and that is the flesh. Let me put it to you this way. The flesh, in this context, is not merely those sinful deeds associated with body parts. Like, for instance, adultery or murder or lying. Telling a lie with our mouths. In Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh also describe inward thoughts like envy and pride and sensuality, enmity and anger. So Paul's not just literally talking about the physical body and the deeds we physically do with our physical bodies. 
And yet it's still true that our flesh is still subject to sin because our bodies are not resurrected. Both of those things are true. Our sinful flesh taints our body and our soul, our inward thoughts, our outward actions. So let me give you an example of this. Believers in the presence of God today, to be absent from the bodies to beware, present with the Lord. But they're present with the Lord and they are apart from sin because they are in the presence of the Lord. And they're also apart from sin because they left their bodies on earth that are tainted by sin. So you could say, and this is not a theological point, it's, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, they're only half Christians because only half of them is there. Their body is still here. And that, my friends, is the predicament that we live in this side of the resurrection. Until you receive a perfect body at the second coming of Christ, you will struggle with sin unless you die and your spirit goes and bees with the Lord. So you will struggle with sin and your flesh is part of that. Your flesh has been affected by sin. But notice this common predicament is followed by a common process. Second part of verse 18 and verse 19, Paul says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Well, that's the same thing as verse 15, isn't it? Go back to verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul's repeating himself. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then he says in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the same thing as verse 15, except the thing he wills or wants to do is good this time, and the thing that he doesn't will or want is evil. So he's stating verse 15 in the exact opposite way, but saying the same thing. And as he said in verse 15, and as he's saying here, he's not saying that he's incapable of doing any good. That's the basis of his frustration, is that he wants to do good, and sometimes he does do good, but he can't perfectly do it. This is the process that he's been thrown into. It's the process of a mature believer who struggles with sin because his desire is to be perfect like his Lord. And we all know that's impossible this side of heaven. Therein lies the frustration. We often get that backwards. We think that a mature believer is self-satisfied and proud of himself and his accomplishments and where he has come and how far he has come. The opposite is true by the example of Paul. There's a common predicament, common process And notice Paul identifies the common problem in verse 20 of this second confession. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's a repeat again of verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. But again, on the surface, it sounds like he's blaming sin and not himself, but he's doing the exact opposite, right? He's saying, I don't want to identify with that sin. I know it's mine, but... I'm personifying it to show that it's my enemy. I know I'm the problem. I know I'm the issue. So let me put this to you very practically. How do you battle sin in your own life? Well, here's two practical points. Number one, don't flirt with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't flirt with temptation. And number two, deal a heavy hand to it. I was reading recently of a little boy who walked into the store. He was only four or five. He was with his mom, but his mom was busy buying other things, and he walked up to the candy display in front of the cashier, and he's just staring at the candy. And finally, the cashier looked at him and said, son, what are you doing? Are you trying to steal some candy? 
He didn't even look up at her. He just stood at the, stared at the candy, and he said, no, I'm trying not to steal it. And the cashier said, well, that's probably not the best way to try not to steal it, by lusting and slobbering over candy. We must not flirt with sin. Whatever you have to do in your life to remove temptation, you must do. Whatever extreme measure you have to take to remove your propensity to whatever sin it may be, you need to do that. Don't flirt with it. Don't hang around it. Second practical point. First is don't flirt with it. The second one is deal a heavy hand with it. David McCullough is a writer of history, and he wrote a biography on Harry Truman. He speaks about Truman being under incredible pressure while attending the Potsdam Conference. And one evening near the end of an arduous session at the palace, Truman prepared to leave for his nearby lodgings when a young army public relations officer, seeing Truman about to leave in his car, stuck his head in the window and asked if he could hitch a ride with Truman, so Truman told him to get in. The two struck up a conversation, and the conversation was then conveyed by the driver of the vehicle. And in Berlin, McCullough says that the black market was rampant. Everything was available from cigarettes to stolen watches to whiskey to prostitute. And the officer said to the president, If there's anything you need, anything at all that I can get you, you just let me know anything, you know, like women or prostitutes. McCullough says that Truman got red-faced. He said, listen, son, I married my sweetheart. She doesn't run around on me. I don't run around on her. I want that understood. Don't ever mention that kind of stuff to me again. And the driver said that when he got out of the car, he didn't even say bye to the officer. He slammed the door and marched into his lodgings. Don't be courteous to sin. Slam the door. Walk away. Don't even say goodbye. Deal a heavy hand with sin. Examine your heart. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Forsake your sin. What does Scripture say in Psalm 119? It says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Scripture is is like a road map that God has given us to the destination of holiness. And ultimately, we won't arrive at that until we see him. First John 3, 2, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. But the Bible has many signs that lead us down the path of sanctification. One of those is the commands of Scripture to obey, the law of God. Let's start with the easiest, right? Because you can't pursue consistently a sanctified life if you ignore the law of God. And we live in a culture that wants to ignore and suppress the law of God. There are certain quarters of the church that doesn't want to speak about the law of God, the laws of God. They don't want to open the Old Testament. They don't want to read a confession that describes the law of God, the negative and the positive features of God's law, what we're forbidden from, what we're required to do. How can you be holy if you ignore God's law? One of the signs on the road to holiness are the commands of Scripture to obey. Secondly, there are examples in Scripture to follow. The first 17 books of the Old Testament and the first five books of the New Testament are narrative, they're biographical. What does Paul tell us later in this very book? He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Aren't you encouraged when you read about Joseph who ran when he was tempted? And aren't you warned when you read about David who, when he was tempted, kept looking at Bathsheba? There are examples, good and bad, to follow in Scripture. These are signs for us. Third, there are promises to claim. 1 Corinthians 10.13, the power of the Spirit. 
There hath no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. The power of the Spirit. God promises the power of the Spirit in your life. God's Word also promises the power of supplication. Jesus said in John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And you also have the power of steadfastness. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice the order, submit to God first. If you don't submit to God, if you don't commit yourself to submitting to God, you won't be able to resist the devil. But this is the power of the Spirit, the power of supplication, the power of steadfastness. The promises of God's Word to the believer are signs to keep us going on the path of sanctification. Spurgeon compared God's promises to like a blank check that he signed and he gave to his children to co-sign to bring to heaven's treasury to draw out the limitless wealth of heaven's account. The promises of God. Fourth, there are sins to avoid. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what Scripture says tells us, as I mentioned earlier, there are positive features of God's law, things that we are to do in light of what God forbids in His law, and things that we are forbidden from doing, like the Eighth Commandment. Positively, we're required to further the wealth that we have and to help others and to not be lazy and to give back to God. Negatively, we are to refrain from from stealing from others, being stingy. All of these are signposts. The commands of Scripture to obey, examples to follow, promises to claim, sins to avoid. And of course, there are principles that we are to follow. Timeless truths that keep us on the straight and narrow. I'll just give you one or two quickly. One would be, and and I love to go to the Proverbs to find these. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's pretty straightforward principle, isn't it? You hide your transgressions, you cover them up, you will not be blessed, you will not prosper. Or what about Proverbs chapter 6? You're all familiar with this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, that's pride. A lying tongue, dishonesty. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. One who sows discord among brothers. There's a good start to holiness. If you're committing those sins and not repenting of them, you will never be the sanctified vessel God wants you to be because God hates those sins. Scripture is truly a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Commands to obey, examples to follow, promises to claim, sins to avoid, principles to follow. It is the Word of God that the Spirit uses to sanctify His people. The ability to be steady in the battle of the Christian life through thick and thin, through victories and defeats, and the pursuit of Christian holiness means that we are a good soldier, a disciplined soldier, as Paul told Timothy to be. I'm currently reading a book on the invasion at Normandy on D-Day. It is amazing to read about the courage of the Allied forces. A particular commander who was in charge of a British regiment of parachute troopers who jumped out of planes and invaded Nazi-occupied France. The amazing thing about these men is that it was the Halifax bomber that would tow them in a glider that did not have an engine, the string attached, 30 men inside, sometimes even with vehicles, jeeps, in this little wooden plane with no engine and wooden everything, 
controls and a pilot who had to be really good because right as they got above the coast, a lever was pulled down and the string broke off and the Halifax bomber went away and now they're gliding in the quiet air to their destination, landing at 100 miles an hour with no engine and a pilot that has to be really, really, really good. And this particular commander of this British regiment decided after studying the maps that they would land right on top of a German battery because there were landmines all around. But as you can imagine, as the plane is gliding and it's a little bit difficult to steer where you want to go and it's dark, they sort of landed off course and they landed away from the battery. And so this officer gets out to find his men. There were supposed to be 600 of them and he could only round up 150 to take this massive battery of military weaponry of the Nazis shooting down on the beaches. And so after crawling hundreds of yards on their bellies and snipping through hundreds of feet of barbed wire, they finally reached the battery undetected through minefields and then they had to take the battery. And they were successful in doing that. Only 75 men were left when it was done. And I was reading this account and as they were studying the maps Weeks before, they decided that after they took the battery, because that's always the way the military said you were to do things, you will do this. So after you take this, here is the rendezvous point. And you know what the rendezvous point was? It was a statue, actually a crucifix of Jesus nailed to the cross at Calvary on a concrete square at a crossroads. And anyone that knows me knows that I don't like crucifixes. And as Reformed people, we don't promote that. But this officer rendezvoused with his men at the feet of Jesus. After the smoke of the battle was clear, many casualties, many dead, seeing friends and fellow soldiers around, it gives to us a picture, doesn't it? Crucifix or no crucifix, of the reality that in our pursuit of holiness, we must learn to rest at the feet of Jesus. It's the only thing that's going to push us through. It's the only thing that's going to get us through. And that's why when Paul gets to the end of this passage, yeah, he speaks about the struggle. He speaks about the predicament, the process, and the problem. He confesses. He opens his heart. He lays himself bare. But we find him at the end of the passage sitting at the feet of Jesus, resting in the gospel, resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our desire and our hope is that you know this Christ. Because he can free you not only from the penalty of sin, but he can free you from the power of sin. He can give you life eternal and dwell you with his presence, be with you forever, and bless you as a new creation that now seeks to live, not perfectly, but on a trajectory that wants to honor the God who created you. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.